بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله وحده والصلاه والسلام على من لا نبي بعد اما بعد just so you note the questions that you send i will incorporate them in the presentation so it's not like we're going to go through the questions and give answers right now but i will incorporate that at some point in this two day workshop inshallah those of you who ask slightly off topic questions or completely off topic questions and i will try to get to you in the break about that and we'll just talk about that individually inshallah ta'ala all right i did try to send some messages out that if the people who are the people from uk and europe who are unable to come i'd rather read really specifically the people from europe who are unable to come and they have some questions they can uh send them on you know i don't know so anyway i tried to get some of the coordinators to make some system where they could send questions all right now going back to i'm going to now combine something about history and theory okay so first i'm going to talk about this word silsila silsila and tariqat before i come to talking about who the people of deoband were because that's a more recent time i wanted to do one more thing historically so this is something that i have explained in detail in different places on the website how these things came about those of you who might remember i often like to use the story of sheikh hamd qadir jilani ta'ala and that somebody goes to baghdad and meets him have you people heard that story i make i make up a story huh the caravan the trader no Hello, no problem. We'll do it again. So basically, what happened was that first stage in history, these were individuals. In the Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, in his time, nobody was calling themselves a Qadri. In Imam Hawdi Naksiband Bukhari, in his time, nobody was calling himself a Naksibandi. In fact, at Imam Malik, in his time, nobody called himself a Maliki. In Imam Shafi, in his lifetime, nobody called himself a Shafi. All right. So what happens was that these things happened after these personalities passed away, and the leading students of those personalities, and then when they would teach others, they would have an affiliation. They would do bayan of their nisba, means they would mention and explain their connection, and from where they got these teachings. So just to give you a totally unrelated example, Imam Shafi Rimalatala, some of his major students was Imam Rabia. Imam al-Bawati, Imam al-Muzni, Rahmatullahi alayhi majma'in And they started teaching Imam Shafi's positions in fiqh And they used to say, Qala Shafi'u And then they would go and mention their thing And then when their students used to receive this from them Their students used to be called Shafi'i And then their students generation would go back and call their teacher Shafi'i It's not even that Imam al-Muzni would say, I am a Shafi'i He wouldn't say that, but he would teach the legal positions and usul and furu, you know, legal theories and principles and laws of Imam Shafi'i Mulatana. So just like it happened in Fiqh, the same similar thing happened in the Sawaf. The Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalani Amtale and Hazrat Sheikh Imam Bahadur Nakshbandi Muhayr Amtale, their students wouldn't themselves even necessarily say they were Nakshbandi or Qadri, but in the next generation, the students' students, they would start using that term. Why? Because the same thing that would happen, Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalani and his students would say, Qala Sheikh Abdul Qadir, our Sheikh, he said this, and he taught us that, he taught us that. And then it became a body of teachings. 
it became a body of knowledge. And then what is transmitted in one more generation, then that body of knowledge became called or labeled Qadri. And the people who were transmitting it and learning it and practicing it and whose lives were changing because of it were called Qadri. Right? Okay? So, actually, I will change the example from the earlier one based on this explanation. So, imagine that... Uh, Because if those of you remember, the example is slightly different than the expression I gave. <laughs> Imagine there is somebody in Damascus. And in that time, people used to travel a lot for trade. And they, they would travel, as, let's say there's a caravan of trade goes from Baghdad to Damascus. And they would take a lot of goods, and maybe ten camels, maybe hundred camels, carts. <coughs> and they would load up and take all those goods from Iraq to Sham. And when they, it would take, you know, maybe a few weeks to make that journey. When they would arrive in Damascus, they would set up a caravan camp and they would stay there for a couple of months. And all the time, number one, they're trying to sell all their goods. And number two, they would go, they would trade, because it wasn't cash, and they would trade and get goods from Sham to take back. Or there may have been cash terms and dinars also. They would sell or trade and they would buy also goods to take back with them to Iraq. Alright? Now, let's take, so we will take some of you, and we will use you for the example. Alright? So, imagine we have Safwan. And Safwan lives in Damascus. And Muhammad Atayat, Muhammad, has come from Baghdad with a big caravan of goods. <laughs> and Safwan is also a trader. So, one day Safwan goes to the camp, he meets Muhammad, and they start trading. And because Muhammad is there for some time, they keep trading, and then they become a bit close, and Safwan likes Muhammad, and sees Muhammad, mashallah, on deen. So he starts inviting Muhammad to his house. That, you know, why don't you come have your evening meals with me? You're a musafir. You're traveling. So then at house, then it's a more personal environment. So now Muhammad doesn't talk trade, or goods, or silk, or tea, or coffee. Now Muhammad starts talking about Allah SWT. So you can see a kind of majlis start taking place in Safwan's house. And when Muhammad talks to Safwan, he says things from the Quran, he says things from Hadith, and he also takes the name of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalain Abtani. And Sheikh Abdul Qadir, he said this, and he taught us this, and he told us to love Allah. And so Safwan, because Safwan never been to Baghdad, and he's never met Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jalain and there's no live broadcast from Baghdad to Sham at that time. Allahu Akbar. So the way Safwan is introduced to the teachings of Sheikh Abdul Qadir is through his friend Muhammad. So then, just like those words and teachings and the words of Muttaqeen Salihin have an effect on a person, just like they affected Muhammad who heard them directly, they began to affect Safwan who heard them indirectly. Just like when you read the books of Imam al it's not direct. You didn't meet him. But his words, when you receive them, it has an effect on you. So what is the effect? The Safwan life starts to change. He starts coming on deen. Maybe he starts praying tahajjud salah. Maybe he starts reciting more Quran. He starts feeling more feelings for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? And this continues. And then in a few months, maybe Muhammad feels like I've shared everything I can. And now it's time for Muhammad to go back. Because the caravan is going back to Baghdad. 
So Safan says, oh, you know, I'm going to miss you so much. And we had such wonderful gatherings in our house at night. And I benefited so much from the teachings of Sheikh Nanda Qadr that you told me. So Muhammad says, well, why don't you come back with me to Baghdad? And you can meet the Sheikh. And Safan says, me? Little old me? Go to Baghdad? And Muhammad says, yes, why not? You come with me. And Masa, you took such good care of me here. And we will arrange everything over there. And then he says, you know what? She comes to God. The giant is a big masjid. And that masjid, there's rooms around the courtyard called Zawiya Khanka. <coughs> and you can go there and you can just live in the masjid. And you can spend 24 hours in ibadat and zikr and ilm and Quran. And you can attend all the gatherings of Shaykh. So Safran goes home, asks wife permission. Huh? Yeah, Allah Akbar. He's unmarried right now. Allah Ta'ala give him pious wife, inshallah. But Sufan goes home, has a wife permission, or has mother permission, or has father permission. He gets permission. Alhamdulillah. So he joins Muhammad and goes back all the way to Baghdad. When he goes to Baghdad, he enters the masjid, and he's given room. And these were rooms, and I've seen masjid like this. And this was actually people even who study history of Islamic architecture. This was a feature. There was a stand called a courtyard. And around the courtyard there were rooms. If sometimes the masjid had a tafsir scholar, so the students of tafsir would live in the rooms. Sometimes the masjid had a big muhaddis who give dars and hadith there, so they were talaba, students of hadith who lived in the rooms. Sometimes there would be a masjid, there was sheikh who was doing tazkiyah, teaching people zikr and love for Allah Ta'ala. So those people would get rooms. Though that masjid which had the rooms for tafsir and hadith would later be called madrasa. This type of masjid would later be called in Arabic zawiya, in Persian khanka. In Turkish, Taki. Hmm? Alright? Okay. So, <coughs> Safan gets to room. And the Safan starts spending time and he gets to meet Sheikh Al-Takadr Jain Abdallah. He gets to get his live, Sohba, Majlis, etc. And maybe he spends a few weeks, one, two months, Allah Alam, like that. Right? And at some point, maybe Safan makes a decision. Maybe Sheikh Al-Takadr Jain himself calls Safan and says, Okay, now you can go home. Because you have spent enough time here. Like the university says, okay, four years, you're done, we give you a degree, you graduate, you go home. Right? That's how institutions of learning are. They decide how long you have to spend, or they get a feeling that they feel you've spent enough time, and they give you a degree, and they say, now you go. Right? So just like that, Safan goes home. So then Safan goes all the way back to Damascus. When he goes back to Damascus, he has friend there, Usman Fatih. And Usman Fatih sees Safwan after so many months. Says, oh, you were gone and, and you look different. There's something different about you. And Safwan, humble, quiet person, doesn't say anything. Right? The next to Usman Fatih, he hears Safwan giving adhan for Fajr Salah. Allah Akbar comes to Masjid and he sees that Safwan is there. And before Safwan wasn't always so early and regular in his Fajr Salah. Hmm? Usman Fatih sees some change. Then he sees that Safwan has become very soft and humble and gentle and kind. So one day Usman Fatih cannot take the curiosity anymore. He says, Safwan, I want to talk to you. He says, yes. He says, you are like a changed man. What happened? So he sits down Usman and he tells him a story. That what happened was somebody came. His name was Muhammad from Baghdad. We used to get together at night. He used to teach me. And they used to mention many things. Then I went. And oh, I went to... Mm, Baghdad and I met Sheikh and these things have changed my life 
So Sman says to Safwan that look, I can't go to Baghdad because I'm too busy and too many things I have to do in Damascus. So why don't you, what you learned in Baghdad, you sit and you teach me? Okay? So now the student of Fikhah is Safwan. Student of student becomes Usman. Right? So then Usman starts spending few time with Safwan, Safwan, and then Usman changes. Usman changes, then he goes from Damascus to Halab. May Allah Ta'ala give these places Amman again. He goes to Halab, place where he originally was from. He moved to big city. He goes to Halab, he meets his other friend, other Usman. And the other Usman says, you know what happened to you? You changed so much. So he's student of student. So then Usman Fatih tells other, oh, Lamin, sorry, Lamin. Huh? So, and then Lamin, he says that you've changed. And Usman Fatih tells the story that there's a sheikh in Baghdad. I met the student of the sheikh and he told me, and I'm student of student of sheikh. So Lamin says, oh, I've heard of that sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Jalani. He said, yes, it's that same one. So, okay, I understand you're following Qadri teaching. And Usman says, yes. And so this label became attached. The person whose life changed because of the teachings of Sheikh Amdakad and Jalal Amtale, or who was following, and I'm going to explain that to you in a bit, the method of zikr of Sheikh Amdakad Jalal or he used to read the books of Sheikh Amdakad Jalal So that person became called, oh, you're in Qadri teaching. And then over time, because you are Qadri. Alright? Just like a person who follows Hanafi fiqh, they say he's Hanafi. I mean, that means Hanafi is Muslim. Right? What it means is just abbreviation. What it means is ordinary, regular, Sunni Muslim like everybody else who in terms of legal positions fit follows the legal positions of Imam Unifo students, 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 students. But that's too long to say. So they just say one word Hanafi. They say one word Maliki. Right? It's not some new religion. It's not a sect. It's not a Nakida. It's not a Firka. Right? It's just shorthand. Shorthand. Okay? So just like that, the person is Qadri, in the same way a person might be Hanafi and Shafi. It's not a sect, it's not an Aqidah, right? It's just that he benefited from the principles and teachings, the usul and amal of Tazkiyah taught by Sheikh Amdakan and that was continued to be taught by his leading students. Alright? So this is how you had the origin of the beginning of Silsana. Alright? Now, just like there are differences in Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbali, Fiqh, right? In their legal theory and usul, and in their legal rulings, but in Arabic it's called Furuwa. So just like that, in Tawaf, there were some differences. So example of differences was sometimes understanding about the relative role and balance of different things. So I'll give you an example. There may be some Silsala, that put more emphasis on group zikr. There might be some salsa that put more emphasis on individual zikr. Right? So as long as it's within reason, both possibilities could have been there. Right? There might be have some salsa that put more emphasis on reading du'as from some particular book, like Al-Hazb al-A'zam. There might be another salsa who put more emphasis on reading Dalail al-Khirat. Right? There might be some silsila that put more emphasis that when you do zikr of Allah Ta'ala, you should do zikr of Allah Ta'ala's name, ismizat Allah. 
Another sister said you should make more emphasis on zikr of the Asmal Husna, Ya Latif, Ya Rahmanu, Ya Rahimu. Right? So these are all within acceptable differences. Right? Now what happens is, so this gives you an example of differences. Right? I gave you some in practice also now. So both in understanding and in practice you've got some examples. Now over time, just like in fiqh, in the beginning the differences, but it wasn't so clear. But every generation it became more concrete the differences, right? Since it was in a few generations you had very clear Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbali. Four concrete, discrete, separate identities or collectivities of fiqh. So the same thing happened at the soul. Right? That's it. Then there's another aspect of Silsala, which is the notion of bear to a sheikh. Right? So one is it represents the teachings. Now, actually in fiqh, it used to originally be the same thing. We wouldn't call it bear, but they would use this word tafakkaha an. So tafakkaha an means they learned law and jurisprudence from so-and-so. And they would have their sanat. So for example, in Hanafi fiqh, Imam Abu Jafar Tahari Ta'ala, he learned fiqh from Bakar ibn Ta'ala and many other teachers who then were the students of Muhammad ibn Asli who were the students of Abu Nifra So this thing predates the Sawaf. Before the Sawaf, it first happened in fiqh and hadith. That who is a person of hadith, the muhaddith, would say, yes, but I learned hadith from this scholar, who learned hadith from that scholar, who learned hadith from that scholar. So actually, the Sawaf got this concept from ilm. That especially in hadith and fiqh, not so much this happens in tafsir. Allah alam why that I have always wondered about that, I don't know the answer to that question myself. Right? But in hadith and fiqh, you find it from the earliest time, you name talking from tabai tabin and onwards. People mentioning their chain, sanad, their chain of who they learned from in terms of fiqh and hadith. So then the people of the Sof adopted the same thing. So Lamin would say that I heard the teachings of Sheikh Al-Dakadzi from Usman Fatih, who heard them from Safwan, who heard them some from Muhammad and some directly from Sheikh Al-Dakadzi Right? So he would mention, let's say he wanted to teach Suhaib. So Suhaib would say, oh, you're taking Sheikh Al-Dakadzi's name. you never been to Baghdad. Lamin would say, yes, i never been to Baghdad. So how do you know he said these things? So he would have to explain that I heard it from Usman Fati, who heard it from Safwan, who heard it from Sheikh Abdul That's how I know said these things. Because remember back then there wasn't internet or printed so much. There were beginning of books, not printed but hand copied, but it wasn't so much. It was mostly teaching the teachings verbally. Right? Imam Ali does not have any books. So how do people know what his positions were? Because they were taught verbally. Okay? So this was the way the taught tradition took place. Then what happens in some of the Sosalas, this is a very theoretical thing, I am, I'm going to do it, but if you don't understand what I'm about to do right now, it's okay. Some of the Sosalas, they have what we call inkita. Inkita means there's some gaps in the written ones that you see, right? So sometimes a person doesn't understand, so how is that possible? So for example, in one, one of the Naqshamandi chains, it's not the only one, that there is that Bayezid Bustamin Abtana is even before Imam Bayezid, even to call it Naqshamali is not correct, I'll just explain that to you also. But Bayezid Bustamin Abtana is mentioned that the person before him was Imam Jafar Sadiq Abtana. 
but they could never have met each other because Bayezid Bustanta was born after the date of death of Imam Jafar Sadiq. So what does it mean when you see their names in the Sussala? So it's not saying they met each other. There's no claim that they met each other. There's no claim that there was some kashf or they met each other in some spiritual realm. It's just saying that, okay, this was a main teacher. After him, this was a main teacher. But they didn't meet each other. I'll explain in a few different ways. So, for example, if somebody was to say, okay, who were the... I'll just take a toy different example. Who were the leading Marxist economists in America? So I'll say, in the 1950s, it was this person. In the 1970s, this was the main person. In 1990s, this was the main person. So I would give these three names in order. But I'm not saying that they each learned from each other. I'm not necessarily saying that. But I'm saying the Marxist teaching, the same teaching, is the common thread. Why am I putting them in a sequence then? Because the same teaching is there in them. Right? So this was something that happens in the earlier few centuries. That the list of the people, most of the time, is that they met each other. And some of the time, maybe you can say like 10% of the time, 90% is that they met each other, and they actually were. They received the teaching from that person. And 10% of the time, they didn't meet each other, but they received the teachings of that person through somebody else who was not a major teacher. So, for example, once I did research on this issue, and I actually found a book which mentions the people who Bayezid Bustami and Amtale, he kept their company, and there were people who kept the company of Imam Jafar Sadiq Ramtane. So he received the teachings through them. But because that individual teacher was not such a famous person, not a prominent person, was not really a sheikh, other than the fact that they happened to teach Bayezid Bustami, but beyond that they weren't really a sheikh, so later on historians dropped their name. I'll give you an example in fiqh. Very few people, unless they really go into history, say Imam Tahawi is a famous Hanafi jurist, they don't know who his teachers are. They just know he's Hanafi. And there's no way he could never remember Hanifa because he was born much later. But they just know that he must have received the teachings somehow authentically. And they don't bother. So then when you find lists of Hanafi jurists, they'll mention Imam Hanifa, Imam Yusuf, Imam Shabani. The next they'll mention Imam Tahawi. Because he's the next major guy. There was no real major person between Imam Tahawi and Imam Shabani. But there's about um, 100 years uh, a little bit like seven years between when Imam Shabani dies and Imam Tahir is born. Alright? So, this is one thing. Then some people, they take, if you go even earlier in history, so they even mention the name of a Sahabi. Right? So for that, that I would take out of my computer, but I found something, and once I did this for you people, some, some people online, so I found that Imam al-Zahabi, Rimalatala, was a great Hadith scholar. He mentioned an interesting thing, and I can't remember all the names right now, but it has Imam Shafi there. That Imam Shafi learned how to pray Salah, and he meant how to feel Salah from so-and-so, who learned from so-and-so, who learned from so-and-so, who learned from so-and-so, who learned from Sayyidina Abu Bakr, who learned from Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu So I found the evidence that people would even talk about Amal, and Ibadah, and taqwa, they would mention a chain, right? And they would just take that chain back to Sahaba Ikram. Again, why? Because the hadith and fiqh people would also mention their chain back to Sahaba Ikram. For example, Imam Unifari Matala, his ustaz was Hamad, and he learned a lot from Abdullah bin Masood, right? But does that mean Hanafi fiqh? That Abdullah bin Masood was a Hanafi. 
You can also say that Bakras to Diklanta was the next Bandi. You can also say that Ali Rasulullah was Qadri or Kristi. That's wrong. But you can say that when you go back, even before these Tariqa names, even before these personalities, these were the Sahaba who were sitting with people. Once I did a talk in Birmingham on Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu and actually showed that there's historical evidence that he kept the suhbah of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu and that other people kept his suhbah. So these are just chains of companionship. You cannot call anybody before Bahaudi Naqshaban Naqshabandi. You cannot call anybody before Shikandakajam Dikadri. After when you call them that, I will explain to you in what sense that is being used. Alright? So this is another example of some ghulu. Remember I told you the concept of Zaypi people take it too far. So somebody tells you, oh Sayyidina Abu Bakr was Naqshabandi. But that doesn't... <laughs> It's a ludicrous statement. It makes no sense whatsoever. Right? Or to say Sayyidina Abdullah Masrudna was Hanafi. Or Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umaratah was Shafi. So these are wrong statements. And this is incorrect. Right? Another question I will just mention aside that why is it sometimes that we find even some great scholars, great shayukh, sometimes you see a little bit in them. Because they're human. That's it. It's just their human personality. And the only human beings who are free from error were the Anbiya, Mursaleen, the Prophet So you don't have to worry if somebody did took something too far. And this is what I want to explain to you, which is the second topic after Silsila, is this group of ulama. And I would even go before Deoband, I call it ulama Hind, because there were several ulama before even the Madras and Deoband was formed, who were also important in this, like Shavali ulama, the Delavi, and others. This was one of their special features that they took all the good things from the past ulama and anyone who went a bit or maybe even sometimes more than a bit far too far they wouldn't take that extra stuff they would leave it but they wouldn't it wouldn't disturb them that if a person went too far right that's why they actually have love for Ibn Taymiyyah and Imam al which like for example in the Arab world it's almost impossible to find somebody like that because it's like an either or thing but these ulama of Hind, they were easily able to have love for both. Alright? So, uh, this is one thing, so it's very important, right? Then another aspect of Sasla, still some people feel like it's a concept of baraka, that I want to be bear to a sheikh, who himself was bear to a sheikh, who himself was bear to a sheikh, who himself was bear to a sheikh. Now you can trace that as long as the process of bear started, but when you keep going back in history, you can't use the word bayat anymore. So you would say, who was bayat to a sheikh? Who sat in the company of a sheikh? Who had sohbah of a sheikh? Who had sohbah of a sheikh? Who had sohbah of a sohbah of a tabi tabi? Who had sohbah of a tabi? Who had sohbah of a sahabi? Who was the sahib of Rasulullah? It's not like bayat was taking place earlier on. Okay? So, why this concept of bayat then? So what happened was that when it became more formally structured, just like again fiqh and hadith, before people would just go to masjids and learn from that muhaddith, but then later they made a formal institution called madrasa, then you would formally admit, enroll, enroll and register in the madrasa, then you would formally get a sanad, a degree certificate from the madrasa, right? So then the same thing happened in Kosovo. They formalized it. So the reason they took this word daya, and that's something we've explained in detail in the earlier talks on the website, is because they said, okay, if we want to formalize this, can we find anything in the Quran and Sunnah as some model that we can use 
for how we should formalize this aspect of learning of Tazkiyah. So they found that in Surah Al-Mubtahina about Be'ah and in the Sahih Bukhari Kitab Al-Iman, the word Be'ah. And so they found from Quran and Sunnah that when female Sahabiyat in Surah Al-Mubtahina and male Sahabi Ikram in the Sahih Bukhari would come to the Prophet in the case of the women, or were already sitting with the Prophet in case of the men, the Prophet used this word, Be'ah. For them to formally express their niyyah and intention that they want to leave shirk, never return to shirk, leave all sin, follow a life that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So then they adopted that word to establish the teacher-student relationship. That's it. The teacher-student relationship already existed. But when they wanted to formalize it, so they used the word bear. Now again you can think about Hulu. Some people took the concept of bear too far. That, you know, I'm pledged allegiance to the Sheikh. It means that me and my family and my money and everything belongs to Sheikh. And that's not what it means. <laughs> right? But some people took it that far. Right? And then that also has, in more recent times, led to financial abuse also. Right? That Allah Ta'ala protect everyone. Right? Uh, so sometimes there were some incorrect things that happened. Or sometimes it led to turning too much to the Shaykh, not for Tazkiyah, but for worldly matters. For example, the Shaykh will decide what color car I will drive. Allah Akbar Kameena. <laughs> right? Huh? There's no need for that. And some other similar, you can get an idea. So everything in the, not just the Sawaf, everything is head of Hulu. I won't comment on this, but for example, you know that there's a, something called jihad. So there's a true jihad, and then there's a the false jihad. And you can see all types of ghulu, and extremism, and falsehood, and, and jihad also. You can see it in the soul of falsehood. Right? There's a true concept of how you should not have bidah. Then there's an overdone, extreme, taken too far concept of what is bidah. Right? Etc., etc. Okay? So... Uh, all of these things sometimes they were some type of departures that took place historically. So now that brings me then now to this topic which I told you I would do in the second session. So I would just call them ulama Hind. Hind is generally referring to even Mughal India started and then British India. Alright? Uh, and later on ultimately they are also known as ulama Deoband. So there were some very particular features about them. And this is my own personal view. One cannot establish this with certainty. But my personal view is that as a group, Allah Ta'ala definitely took the work of the deed from them. Is any one of them the majaddid? Which one is the majaddid? Allah knows best. In recent times, you can't really say that so clearly. But you can see, when you look back in history, the work that Allah Ta'ala took from a group of people. Right? So definitely the work of the deed was taken from them. And now I want to talk specifically a bit about uh, their particular understanding of the Sawaf, right? And that is the practice of the Sawaf that we are to follow and that we share with others. And so if I bring myself right now to 2017, and I'll also speak to you very openly, basically right now in 2017, if a person wants to find a path or a teacher in the Sawaf, there are a few things in the English-speaking world, as I'm speaking to English-speaking, 
because otherwise there's much more detail if I go into Indonesian speaking and Arabic speaking and Urdu speaking. Within the English speaking world, there are few, few major ones, and then there are also obviously many ones which have more, maybe a smaller following. So one major one is different, Dilbandi Sheikh, right? Another major one is different, Shadali Sheikh, right? I wouldn't take anybody's name right now, but different Shadali Sheikh. Another major one is different, Ba'alavi Sheikh or Hazhabaib. There's also a Sheikh in Gambia. Uh, so, Ghaliban, I think, is Qadri Salaam. I don't know, Allah Khalib. But so there are three, four broad categories. Within them, there are multiple Sheikh. Multiple Sadli Shuk, multiple Habai, Balavi Shuk, multiple Dimandi Shuk. Right? So here I'm going to do two things. I want to show you the special features of this quote unquote Dilbandi Tasawuf historically from their time and then also in this day and age, in 2017, how it is different in certain ways from the other two. Okay? First, then I will mention some names to you. Now, don't get so worried about the names. I will try to mention as few as I can initially. Alright. Uh, basically, let's see what's the most easiest way I can do this. So, let's start with this first, this one person, Haji Imdadullah Mahajar Makiram Tangla. Now, if you go before him, basically there were two streams that flow into him. One was Naqshabandi and one was Chishti. Alright. In fact, why don't I actually... Hold on, I'm going to open something from my computer and put it in front of me and then I can... Well, it will end up probably me giving you more names. When I put this... I have made some charts actually. So I will say a lot of names, but there will only be a few that I really want you to understand or remember for today. But just for the sake of giving the information, I will mention a whole bunch of names to you. Inshallah. Okay, so what happened was that after the time of Imam Rabbani Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Ramtale, okay, then there was a whole range of ulama shayukh in Naqshbandi Sulsala. From his time, which you're talking about again, like I told you, the 1000 Hijri, up to, we're talking, let's say, about 1300 Hijri. So I'm doing roughly 300, it's actually a little bit less, 250 years. 250 years for you. Okay? So in these 250 years, I will just mention a few major names. The one was Sheikh Ahmed Sir Hindi Ramta himself. One was Sheikh Khwaja Muhammad Masoom Ramta One was Sheikh Mirza Mazhar Jana Jana Ramta One was Sheikh Ghulam Ali Delvi Ramta One was Sheikh Fazlur Rahman Ganj Mahadabadi Ramta One was Sheikh Shah Muhammad Afaq Delvi Ramta Then was Shah Waliullah Delvi Ramta Shah Abdulaziz Devi Ramtanai, Sayyid Ahmed Shaheed Ramtanai. Okay? These were a few of the major Naqshbandi Shayukh in the 200 years actually between Sheikh Ahmed Shahindi Ramtanai and Haji Imdadullah Mahajam Makki Ramtanai. 
Okay, and each of them had all types of students and institutions and writings and books almost all of them have. Right? So entire legacies. Alright? Then, on the other hand, as far as the Chishti Sosala goes, from the time of Shikha Mr. Hindi Namtale, up to up to and including Hajim Dadla Mahajim Makramta himself, the Chishti Shiuk were actually not ulama. They were non-ulama shiuk, which is fine also. They were non-ulama shiuk. Then what happened was, in the time of this person, Hajim Dadullah Mahajim Makkiram Ta'ala, Allah Ta'ala selected him to combine both of these two streams. So first, Hajim Dadullah Mahajim Makkiram was there, a student, and kept the company of a Naqshibandi Sheikh, whose name was Khwaja Nasiruddin Dehliviram Ta'ala. And the Khwaja Nasiruddin Dehliviram Ta'ala became shaheed in a jihad. Allah Then after his first shaykh became shaheed in jihad, then he became bare to his second shaykh. Alright? Miyajiram Dhani, who was shaykh in Chishti Silsala. And then in himself, basically, these two flows, which have a lot of ulama, shayukh in them, basically got combined in him. Then from him onward, he had some very senior ulama became his students. So just today I will mention three names, but really then only focus on one name for you. The three names are Sheikh Malana Qasim Nanotri Amtanai, Sheikh Malana Rashid Amangangori Amtanai, and Sheikh Malana Ashraf Ali Tanvin Amtanai. Of those three, the second two, Sheikh Rashid Amangangori Amtanai, and Sheikh Malana Ashraf Ali Tanvin Amtanai, were the foremost in the Tawaf, of his many students in Tasawwuf. And within these two, they say, the historians of the ulama who write about them, say that Sheikh Rashid had what they call Naqshabandi Nisbat was Ghalib, means the Naqshabandi way was dominant in him, and Sheikh Ashraf Ali the Chishti way was dominant in him. So these two people are important people that I want you to remember. So again, I will now state those names that I want you to remember. Sheikh Rashid Amangungoy Ramtane and then Sheikh Ashraf Ali Tanvi Ramtane. Okay? Then at the same time, the same contemporary time, and then before that, there were some major Naqtamandi ulama you. Right? And from that, if you will, if I was to mention maybe, let's say, two major people, who I would want you to remember. Uh, it's hard to reduce the names, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, hello, Akbar. So I'll mention to you, let's say, one, two, three, I'll keep it at three, okay? So one is Shah Ghulam Ali Delvi Ramtane. Second is Shah Abdul Ghani Delvi Ramtane. And third is Shah Fazlur Rahman Ganj Muradabadi Ramtane. Okay. So you don't have to remember these names, any of them, but basically just understand that there were few leading Naqshbandi ulama shiuch at this time, and few leading Kishti ulama shiuch at this time, and then few shiuch who were combining both at this time. After the combination took place, 
They were all then interlinked with one another. Alright? All then interlinked with one another. So this is just a notion of the people and the history. And if you want to understand now, I was talking to you about the period between 1800 and 1950. Basically, this 150 years that this took place. And this was all during the period of colonialism. 1947 was when the British colonialism ended in this part of the world. And actually, almost every part of the world. Okay? Alright. Now, there are very few... Now, let's do from 1950 till now. There are very few ulama, few left, who have been able to combine all the, these two methods of Naqshbandi and Chisti and ulama and few. So what happened was that again over time the two became separated because it's not easy to find somebody who can combine so many things. So again then you have in the, from 1950 until now some few who aren't ulama some few who are ulama some who are basically Naqshbandi some who are basically Chisti but all following this Dilbandi understanding and method of the Tasawwuf. Okay? Alright. So, I can put this... Hold on. So now I'm going to mention to you that was the history. I know that was a bit complicated. I'm going to mention to you now, which is more important that I want you to understand, is the theory and practice of this collective. So it's not one individual. This whole group of ulama and few of both Naqshbandi and Sufi combined, what is their overall theory and practice? Okay? Alright. So, Alhamdulillah, I have in recent several months been able to benefit a lot from a sheikh. His name is Mulana Kamar al-Zaman in Ahbadi. So, let me introduce him to you also a little bit uh, because he's a living person and he is my teacher and guide. So he is one of those few people left alive who has been able to combine both these methods. So when he was a young man, when he was 16 years, he's 82 years old now, mashallah, may Allah give him health. When he was 16 years old, he became student, bear, and kept the suhba company of a sheikh, whose name is Shah Wasiullah. And Shah Wasiullah Abdallah was one of the most senior students and khulafa of Sheikh Ashrafali Khan Abdallah. And he was so beloved to his sheikh that when he was 18 years old, his sheikh had him, offered his daughter in marriage to him. So when he was 18, he married his sheikh's daughter who was 16. Now for some of you in 2017 Europe, that might seem a little bit young, but back in this early time in India, this was okay. People 16, 17, 18 years old get married. Alright? Uh, so they got married. And then he spent over 22 years living with his sheikh. So he had deep, intense suhbah company with his sheikh. Then when his sheikh passed away, Shah was Jisti, then he gave birth to a next Mandi sheikh, whose name was Malana Muhammad Ahmad Ramtanai. Malana Muhammad Ahmad Ramtanai was one of the senior khulafa of a person who I mentioned to you, Malana Fazlur Rahman Ganj Muradabadi Ramtanai. Malana Fazl Rahman Ganj was the Ustad al Hadith of Malana Qasim Nanotri and Malana Shidam Gori Ramtanai. So, this was an ulama shayukh line of Naqshbandi Sultana. And then Malana Kamra Zaman Sahib Dawan Barakatuh, he spent over 20 years with this sheikh. And he actually did not even leave his town, Allahabad, much. And he didn't teach people. Only when he was in his 
early 60s when his second sheikh passed away. Then after spending basically 40 years with these two sheikhs, then in his 60s he started teaching people to Sawaf and Deen. Alhamdulillah, he has revived this method of combining the Chishti and Akshimandi Sultana. And many ulama now in India and in South Africa and in England have become his students and are learning this Tasawwuf in this method. And so that is the method we are learning and we are also teaching that to you, inshallah. So now, let me explain to you that proper uh, theory and practice. So, few concepts which this understanding of the Tasawwuf is their hallmark concepts. Number one, is they emphasize very strongly very strongly that the purpose of all tasawwuf and tazkiyah is islah and that's just one word but it's a word that they use a lot islah what does that mean? islah in English means rectification correction that basically the things in me that are not correct according to Quran Sunnah Sharia Deen those things have to be corrected that's the first thing and that should be my niyyah my intention and I should always be my niyyah as opposed to, I want to become big Sufi, right? Or I view myself as Sufi. No, I view myself as a person who has flaws, and I need those flaws to be corrected. And all the way, the whole life, this should be the main goal and focus. Like I was telling you, it endless, constant focus. So this is a theme they did. Now, one of the reasons for this is, like I told you, that sometimes people would take a concept too far. They may have started like that, but when they started to correct the major flaws in them, then they started thinking they'd become something. A very dangerous thing. When a person becomes successful in deen, and that will be something I will talk to people tomorrow night in the last, those of you who will be here or can listen, the last program, which is tomorrow night, I will talk about this topic. That what are the dangers that can happen to a person when they actually are strong in deen, when they actually become salih, when they become muttaqi, when they become zakir, there's another than big test Allah Ta'ala takes a person through. And because these ulama were aware of that, that's why they said you must remain humble, you must remain fearful of Allah Ta'ala, and you must always focus on your Islam. You can never think that you've become something, and that you've arrived at some state, or arrived at some maqam. And I will explain that to you Sunday night. But let me I'll explain to you in a bit specific way today, in light of these gatherings that even big Mashaikh, big awliyaullah in history not just one case, in history this has happened that because they were successful in deen shaitan tricked them and this was a delusion and deception that came to them that they thought they had reached a certain stage and then they started cheating on some rules of sharia and nobody is allowed ever by Allah Ta'ala to cheat in sharia so you will find in history, this is another big problem throughout history of the Tawaf, that you would find all of a sudden some sheikh who initially was good and sincere and pious. And for example, in Pakistan, we have examples of people who say that I reached a maqam, I reached a spiritual state that I don't have to pray salah. Allah Akbar Kabeena, But they think they're so holy that they don't need to pray salah. There are people who say that I'm so holy I don't have to go for Hajj. I do my tawaf here. Allah Akbar Kabeena. Or they say Medina, Nahola. Medina Manar was brought to me 
and I can say salam to the Prophet I don't have to go there there are all types of weird things that have come there's one person in Pakistan who is still alive he tells his followers that when I travel you have to get me two tickets I've seen a video of him himself explaining this two tickets, why? because one ticket is for me and the other ticket, Rasulullah will sit with me when I travel. Right? And that's also business class. Yeah. And they actually have pictures of him sitting in the business class with the two with the empty seat next to him. They actually post pictures of their shaykh like that. Then I saw a video of him. He was addressing huge gathering, and that's what made me sad because how could so many people fall for this stuff? He tells them that the Prophet has told me that he's going to visit Pakistan and he wants to know who is going to host him. What he meant is, you know, that the people will throw money that, oh, make lots of food. and So a lot of people started donating money to pay for the expenses. <laughs> it's absurd, really. I mean, you won't, I didn't believe it. Somebody was telling me, they sent me the video, I watched it. I watched it a second time. I watched it three times because I was just in shock. I said, it can't be possible. I said, it can't be that he's saying these things. And when the camera would pan at the audience, I said, Ya Allah, what's the matter with these people? How can they believe this stuff? Hmm? And there I can tell you stories of African shaykh. I can tell you a story of a Saudi shaykh in London. Ajib, things going on over there. Huh? Saudi. (laughs) Saudi. (laughs) But in London, because obviously you can never set foot in Saudi Arabia because of things he's doing. Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar Kabira. So these things are there. So these, this group of ulama, they've seen these things and knew these things and they wanted to make a very careful, cautious, they want all the immunizations and all the vaccinations and all the precautions and all the protections. But ultimately, still, protection only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Like if somebody makes a da'alum, madrasa, and let's say we're very sincere and we want the children to have good tarbiyah, good ta'aleem, but there's only so much you can do ultimately. It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who can save and protect our children. But, you know, the good administrator would have fikr, and he would make du'a to Allah ta'ala, and he would try his best. Right? So that's basically, you can think, the spirit of these people. That this is how their approach was to the souls. They were very aware and wary of the dangers and pitfalls that a person can fall into. Right? And Alhamdulillah, they spent a lot of time, especially these two, Shaykh Rashid Ahmad Gangori Ramtane and Shaykh Rashid Ali Tan Ramtane. And the second one, Shaykh Rashid Ali Tan Ramtane, Alhamdulillah, many of his books are translated in English. Sometimes the English isn't the best English because the translators often their first, they weren't native English speakers, right? Uh, but still, it is a good source of knowledge and information. And we are, and I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, and inshallah we hope to finish it before Ramadan, we are compiling a reading list in English, so that those students who want to, because many people can learn from books also. And I also want to do that because I don't want that I'm the only person you listen to, right? So we want that you should also engage the past masters, Shayyukh, ulama of the tradition through their books and their teachings and their legacy. Alright? So this is one example that I told you which is Islam. Second major thing is about uh, bidah. That they made it very clear that there should not be any bidah that are in the So let me explain this concept a little bit. 
So there will always be things in the Sawuf, Tariqat, Saluk, Zikr that a person does that may not be found exactly like that directly in the Hadith of Nabi Akrim The explanation of this is that whole six hour course which is on the website on Bida it's called Bida in the Islamic tradition Bida and Sunnah in the Islamic tradition so you can listen to that Right? I will just give you one, ma- one or two major points right now and that is that number one that you can do any type of zikr or wear any type of clothing or have any type of practice as long as it is not against sharia khilaf shara that's the first criteria okay number two if it passes that first criteria and it's permissible you cannot view a permissible activity as a sunnah if it is not sunnah so for example I'm wearing this vest in front of you and those of you who know me longer I often if unless it's Pakistan summer you'll always see me wearing a vest but that doesn't mean I think wearing a vest is sunnah right if I start thinking wearing a vest is sunnah or if I allow my students and followers to start thinking wearing a vest is sunnah that becomes bidah because so the Arabic words for this are ihtimam and then iltizam ihtimam means you adopt something so regularly that itself is okay and then iltizam means that you adopted it so regularly that people now think it's a lazim that it's necessary or required and if you don't do it then there's some absence so I'll give you an example from Fiqh so the dua the collective dua that the imam recites after Salah in Jama'ah Actually there's no basis for that in the Sunnah But if sometimes an Imam wants to do it, it's permissible But if he does it always Then that will be viewed as Ihtimam And the sign of Iltizam will be that if one day he leaves it out And all the people are looking around and waiting and wondering what's the matter with him Or they feel our Salah is not complete today because the Imam didn't make Dua That means then they elevated it to a level which was not what it was and they viewed it as some type of sunnah. Okay? So that's why they introduced this element of unstructured zikr that I will explain to you later on today or maybe tomorrow. Right? So we retain the structured zikr, but we introduce an element of unstructured zikr, so it's not only structured, because then people would do ihtimam of it, iltazam of it, it could end up being a bidah. Alright? So that's one way that they countered this issue. I'll give you Okay, but it should also be clear that if there is any good action that is mentioned in the sunnah as opposed to a good action that is not mentioned in sunnah. So if there is a good action that is mentioned in sunnah, you can do complete ihtimam of that as long as you don't do it. I will explain this in English again. I will explain what I'm about to very important and it's a bit tricky. So I will explain two, three times, don't worry. If there is any action that is mentioned in the sunnah you can do 100% ihtimam of that and it won't be considered iltizam. But if there's an action that is not mentioned in the sunnah, if you do 100% ihtimam of that, then that is the danger that it will become iltizam. So therefore you should introduce some gap in that. So let me give you an example of this So Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam in many hadith mentioned the virtue of wearing a turban imamah. So it is mentioned in Sunnah. It is mentioned in Sunnah. Right? 
So therefore you can do ihtimam of that if you want and always wear imama, always wear a turban. Yes, you cannot view it as fard or wajib or required sunnah. You must view it as an optional sunnah. But because it is mentioned in sunnah, you can do it all the time. No problem. Another example, Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam mentioned the fadila, the virtue, merit, preference for wearing white. It's not required. It's completely permissible to wear blue. Right? Once there was a student of mine, he gave me white shoes. <laughs> I've never worn them yet. I was like, Allah, but then I have white socks and white shoes and white vest. I could do that. Right? And white strap and white frame. I could. It's possible. Hmm? Beard Allah is making white, Alhamdulillah. Huh? Right? So, no. So, so sometimes you will see me wearing non-white clothing like the vest and sweater and socks and things. Right? But, I always wear white clothes. I mean, like for the past 22 years. Right? So that's permissible because it is mentioned in the Sunnah. Right? But if people misunderstand and think that white is required Sunnah, then I have to make that clear. So today Amdar made it clear that wearing turban is not a required Sunnah. Wearing white is not a required Sunnah. So there are two types of Sunnahs. One is a required Sunnah and one is an optional Sunnah. Okay? In Arabic, required sunnah is called sunnah al-Muqadda. And optional sunnah is called sunnah al-Ghayr-Muqadda. I'm saying this because sometimes people overcorrect. Overcorrect will be known as sometimes you should wear colored clothing. Sometimes you should not wear imama. That we do also, right? Uh, sometimes we don't wear imama. But that's not strictly speaking required. But if there's something that is not in the sunnah, and you do 100% ihtimam of that, then that's not a good idea. So then it's better to introduce something, some variety, to mix it up, right? So I will show you that now when it comes to zikr. So if there is some type of zikr that is mentioned in the sunnah, you can do it 100% maybe your whole life. For example, mashallah, there might be somebody that Allah blesses that you recite surakaha every Friday of your life for your whole life. Alright? Maybe Allah blesses somebody like that. Okay, but it's not required. It's an optional sunnah. To write Surah on Friday. Okay? The proof of this is the hadith of Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that is Ahabul A'mali indallahi adwa muhawa in kalla that the most beloved of A'mal ibadah to Allah Ta'ala are the adwam, the ones you do the most da'im, most regularly, wa in kalla even if they're kaleel, even if they're few. So it means that you can take a few amal and do them with 100% consistency. That's fine. And nobody should say that by doing that, oh, it means you think it's farz. No, no, I don't think it's farz. You think it's wajib, I don't think it's wajib. So why do you do it so regularly? You give them this hadith because the Prophet said this. That's why I do it regularly. I'm doing it regularly because I wanted it to become the most ahab, the most beloved to Allah Ta'ala. And my Prophet ﷺ told me the one that's most regular is most beloved. And I want to be more beloved, so I may do it more regular. That's simple. Alright? When it comes to azkar or amal or ibadat or practices that are not mentioned in sunnah, then you should mix it up. There should be some variety there. So for example then, the Messiah ulama, shayukh, awliya, with this understanding, will mention to you different types of zikr. can mention different ways of doing the same type of zikr. Right? And you will see that when I will do this for you. When I explain to you zikr, I will live, practically, show you this. Alright?
Okay. So that was one other major teaching. So one was about this concept of Islam, one was the concept of Bidah, right? Third concept was the concept of Seh. They also felt, and there's a range also, I should also be honest with you, in this group of ulama, fiyuh, naqshimani, jishti, combined, even there, there's not just one view. There's a range, or there's a spectrum. There's a range and spectrum of different views. Alright? Range and spectrum. So you will find, and that's also a good thing. Right? Because the only time when there should only be one position is when it's a clear-cut position from the Qur'an and Sunnah. And if something is not a clear-cut, definitive position from the Qur'an and Sunnah, then it's actually good if there's a range on that. Right? So you will find a range, and that range is acceptable. And that's actually, since I brought that up, that's another one of their things. They believe in having a range, and they accept that range. And different shayukh may teach on different ways, different students may benefit from different ways. That's that's even one of their teachings. That you should teach the student the zikr that might be better for them. Maybe a different type, slightly different type of zikr might be better for one student, a slightly different type of zikr may be better for another student. That you let the student themselves do what attracts them more. Right? There's something I mentioned in a recent majlis as well, if any of you heard that. So if there's a student who says that, no, you know, I really feel I'm enjoying reciting Quran, it's okay, God increase that. student who says, I'm really, my heart changed when I recite salawat and the Bihakrim, salam, it's okay, you increase that. Some student says, I really feel focused when I make zikr of Allah Ta'ala's name, it's okay, you increase that. So we can work with a person, so they're a bit flexible, and have a range, and have variety. Alright? Because, and that is actually appropriate in Deen, because if something is not fixed 100% in one single way in the Qur'an and Sunnah, better than that we don't fix it ourselves and we leave the range open. So that was another feature. Going back to what I was mentioning to you about Shaykh. They also make it clear that the role of the Shaykh is not that you should have some cult worship of the Shaykh, that you should elevate the Shaykh too high, that the sheikh is basically a coach, tutor, helper, guide, and should be definitely benefited from, but should be kept in perspective. Should be kept in perspective. So now on this topic, I will give you something that occurred to me, myself, on Umrah. There's not something I cannot claim to you, I got this from this tradition. But maybe you can say I'm trying to be part of the tradition. But does that mean that, like we do in fiqh, you try to understand the usul and you try to apply them onward? So, part of when I was going deep into this tradition, so I also came to some understandings. So, one of them, some of them I will share with you. So, one understanding I will tell you is that there's one word called khidmat. Khidmat. And there's one which is called becoming a makhdoom. So, I feel, at least personally, I'm not commenting on anybody else, but I don't want to become makhdoom. So what does it mean? So I'm going to give you my usul or my principle on this. So if there's something that I cannot do, or I need help from someone in doing, or maybe I could do it, but if somebody helps me, it would be easier for me, then that you can do for me, that's commitment. So for example, if I'm in my library and I take ten books, and I'm trying to carry them, and you happen to see me, you take some of them from me. Right? So that's a khidmat that you helped me in doing something, or you made it easier for me to do. But, with my bag. If I am just carrying this one folder, and I walk in with this folder, and you say, Shaykh, 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 let me take it. Huh? Allah Akbar. 
Yes, yes, let me, no, 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 let me carry that for you. But why? Just something I can maybe even carry on one pinky. Huh? I can carry very easily. And I don't actually need your help in that, or assistance in that. So that's called becoming mukhtoom. So I don't want to be anybody's mukhtoom. Because that's a dangerous thing. Because one problem happens to people when they become mukhtoom, then that can also lead to some delusion. Alhamdulillah, I'm able to pick up my shoes. I don't need to pick up my shoes. I can do that myself. Alright? Yes, sometimes you might see I can't remember where my shoes are. And you maybe you know where they are, you put them, you pick them up, that may be okay. So khidma is something else, makhdoomiyah is something else. I will also tell you honestly, there were many few who their students made them makhdoom and it did not spoil them. This has also happened many times. I've even said the majority times. But I don't have any confidence in myself. And when I look at the minority times, that when becoming a makhdoom spoiled the shaykh, I get scared. Okay? So this is also an example of what I'm saying is a tradition. Trying to be wary. Being aware and being wary, being cautious. You understand what I mean? Right? I once I give an example. I'll give you real examples that people do to me. Right? And when I'm carrying a bag, they're fighting with me. Shaykh, no, no. I, let me just say this in Urdu first because you will really understand. Then they would grab it like tug of war. <laughs> They'll take it from me. It means in English that I, I can't, how can you be carrying it? Uh, and then there's a fight. They're fighting with the sheikh. Right? A tug of war for the bag. And then you give in and you let them take it. <laughs> right? But yes, maybe if the bag is a bit heavy, my arm is tired, I might tell myself that you take the bag. Or maybe I have to use my phone. Like coming here, I told Makal, can you grab the bag? I, I needed to use my phone. Right? Take it. Sometimes, what I would allow is sometimes is a minor act sometimes of affection or love. Right? For example, if I get up and somebody takes my coat and they... I don't think I want you to do these things. But I'm just letting you know. I won't be that sick. No, 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 I can put the coat on myself. Fine, that's an act of gentle love. Okay, you, oh, I put my hand on the sleeve and the other sleeve. Right? That, inshallah, won't make me a makhdoom. So there's a fine line and there is no clear-cut understanding of this. This is left on what they call the tibiyat or mizaj of the sheikh and the tibiyat and mizaj of the student. Alright? But the point is the overall feeling is to be a bit wary, to be a bit careful. Right? Let's say there's some woman who bakes the cake. So okay, fine, no problem. But if I find out, this didn't happen to me, it happened to another sheikh. Uh, I hope it's never happened to me. Right? And what was that? There was another sheikh and his husband wrote a letter. And what was the letter? The letter was that my wife, she hardly ever cooks for me. But when Sheikh comes into the city, she goes crazy in the kitchen and makes ten dishes. And what is this? You know, she's worshipping the Sheikh and I'm her husband. Right? Then obviously, when that letter was written, then it was, the answer was given that this is wrong and it should not be like that. So sometimes what we call fanatical behavior. What they call fans, right? So the word fan in English, like people become fan of celebrities. So both of these things, from I don't want to be a celebrity and I don't want you to be fans. So fan is fanatical behavior. If I tease the woman, we call it fangirl behavior, right? So I don't need that, right? I give you another wrong example. Because Alhamdulillah, we always try to stay out of sight of the women. It may happen sometimes that in some public lecture, right? So if some woman is trying to see me, right? There was one auntie once. If they don't know, even like in, in Lahore, they have no idea what I was. So, I was teaching tafsir. 
And then that particular day, at the end of this, I had to go somewhere, right? I had an urgent appointment, so I couldn't wait. Normally, I would wait. All the women should go. So I tried to go first. Like, as soon as I was done, I, what we call in America, I jetted. I basically ran out, right? There was obviously some woman. Maybe she also had to go quickly, right? So at the gate, we ended up meeting, right? So the auntie, she said to me, she thought I was a student. She said, oh... This is older one, auntie, which is the beta, and you can see it, and you can see it, and you can see it, I said, Vinji? <laughs> so she said to me in English, she said that, oh son, I'm so happy to see you. Sometimes I wonder what the shape looks like. I said, yes. And then I just got in the car and I went away. But what happened was, there was another person who apparently was there who overheard the conversation, and they told her that that was the shape, right? So then apparently what happened, she started, you know, like jumping up and down with joy and going and telling everybody that she saw the shaykh. So this is wrong, right? It, it may be natural, but we want that even some things that are natural, we should be aware and wary, aware and wary, right? Because this celebrity, if the shaykh, if the students make the shaykh a celebrity, obviously even worse, the shaykh makes himself a celebrity, is dangerous, Right? Then I read another beautiful thing by, in one of the works of Shah Wasilah Ramtande. And he said that the Sheikh's job is he should not want to be famous. He should also not want to be hidden. He said this is also wrong. So this is also a type of trick. He said he should leave it up to Allah SWT. Because sometimes that's also something people can overcorrect. That okay, no, then I won't travel because then maybe that will make me famous. I won't go give a talk in public lecture because maybe that will make me famous. So that's overcorrection. You should do dawah with ikhlas. Allah Ta'ala may make you unknown. Allah Ta'ala may make you known. That's up to Allah Ta'ala. And you might remember a dua of Sayyidina Umar. Allah Ta'ala used to say, Allahumma ja'alni fi'aini sahira. We say, a'ina nasi kabira. That she made that dua. Allah Ta'ala make me small, diminutive in my own regard. But make me... Respected in the gaze of humanity. Now why? Not because he had the kabbar. Because he knew to be khalifa. This is a special thing. It doesn't mean sheikhs should follow this to that level. Right? Because that's a different thing. First, he was him and we are us. Second, he was khalifa. Leader of the whole ummah and we are not anything like that. Right? But the notion is that Allah Taala sometimes does put uh, respect for someone in the heart of people only so that it can be guided. But we should still be wary and careful of ever being celebrity behavior or fanatical behavior. So this is an example of some of the ways that they try to keep the shaykh concept in perspective. So I gave you a concept of the zikr thing in perspective that you can do ihtimal or what's in sunnah and you can mix up a little bit what's not in sunnah. Then I gave you one of their important teachings about bidah. Then I gave you an important teaching of islah. So there's more. And over time now, we will... And alhamdulillah, some of these, many of these things are things we taught before, but maybe I didn't always so consciously spell it out for you. And I think that's important now, that we want you to know that these are, you know, open up and sort of between the lines. And so you also understand what were the dangers and pitfalls, so we can be more careful uh, and be guarded against them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is basically uh, what I wanted to mention to you about some of the particular features and factors of this group of ulama and shayuf. Another thing I will mention then maybe is that these extra azkar 
The centers are called the Azkar of the Oliya, right? They also did teach them initially to students. But they kept it in perspective that the purpose of these extra Azkar is to enable you to remember Allah Ta'ala. And as and when a person is able to remember Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala, then they should move more emphasis on the transmitted Azkar. I'll give you an example of this from Sheikh Mr. Hindi Nantana. He writes that the real zikr, the asl zikr, the most valuable and most beneficial zikr, is the zikr the Sahabe Karam, radiallahu ta'ala anumajamain used to do. And what zikr was that? They used to pray long salah. Sometimes at night, long tahajjud. Sometimes after Maghrib, long salat al ubabin Sometimes in the daytime, long salat al-ishraq, salat al-duha, long salah. And then he says that if you look at their salah, why was it special? Because number one, the salah, they were, itself they were praying the of salah. Number two, they were reciting. Because if you pray long salah, you're reciting a lot of Qur'an with the dabbur, with reflection, and with feeling. And number three, inside their salah, they were remembering Allah Ta'ala. Like Nabi Akrim sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned Ihsan. That you make ibadah, you worship Allah Ta'ala as if you were seeing Him. So they had all three things inside. They had salah and Quran with reflection and feeling and they had zikr of Allah Ta'ala. So then he basically, his understanding and the way he taught was that because today people are weak and that imagine he was writing then, imagine how weak we are now. So today people can't go straight to that highest form of zikr. Why? Because number one, they aren't able to recite with feeling and reflection. Number two, they don't even able to remember Allah when they pray fard salah. They don't have zikr in their fard salah, let alone any type of extra salah. And number three, even extra salah itself requires mujahada. And the people today are too weak to spend one hour in tahajjud, one hour in this, and one hour in that. So it says we have to build these things separately. So then he taught this method of zikr, which the first stage was to train your heart to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what he called zikr al-kalbi. And that is also has mentioned in Qur'an. Its basic understanding is mentioned in Qur'an. And some of the detailed understanding was taught by Mishai. But the core aspect of it is there in Qur'an. Taken in Wazkur Rambaka Fi Nafsik, Fifa, etc., etc. So many, and you've heard me mention those verses in many times. Okay, so first they should practice zikr. They should make exercises and practices so they can remember Allah. Then second, once they have that, they should then use that ability to remember Allah. And now they should spend a lot of time reciting Quran, so that they can now understand recite that Quran with understanding and remembrance and feeling. And then when they are able to do that well, then they should go for nafil salah. And now they have the heart that remembers Allah and they have the ability to reflect upon Quran and then therefore they should pray Nawafil Salah. So he almost made a sequence of it. That first they should do a lot of zikr kalbi, Walaikum Salaam Rahmatullah. Then they should make a lot of Tilawat Quran and then they should make a lot of Nawafil Salah. So the notion of that these ulama and shiuch was that Walaikum Salaam Rahmatullah. The extra zikr that you do is for a purpose. It's not a goal in itself. It's only the transmitted zikr that is a goal in of itself. Azan ka
اذان کتنے بجے دینا ہے معمول کیا آپ اذان کتنے بجے دیتے چالیس پر پونے پر جب بھی اچھا وہ تو ہم پہلے آئے تھے چالیس پر پہلے میں ایک دو منٹ میں ختم کر لوں رائٹ سو دس واز دا انڈرسٹینڈنگ اینڈ دوز پیپل ہو فار گاٹ دس واز اے ویری اسپیشل تھنگ اباؤٹ دا انڈرسٹینڈنگ اینڈ دس واز ون مسٹیک آلسو سم پیپل میڈ دیٹ دے وڈ اسٹارٹ ود دا ذکر دیٹ دس یو کین اونلی آٹ ہاف اینڈ دے وڈ جسٹ اسٹے آن دیٹ اینڈ دے وڈ اونلی ڈو دیٹ اینڈ دے وڈ آلویز ڈو دیٹ اینڈ دے وڈ موو ٹو دا ذکر آف دا صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم اینڈ دین الٹیمیٹلی دا ذکر آف صحابہ کرام اینڈ نبی کریم صلی اللہ علیہ وسلم سو وٹ واز مینٹ ٹو بی ایز اے مینس became an end. And that's also a very big thing. That's one of the golden principles of what to be wary about. And these things aren't easy. That's why I can't figure this out myself. You can't figure this out yourself. We have to go back to this great tradition of ulama and shayukh who are very careful about this. And that's the special thing about this tradition. Alright? And they were very careful what is means, what is end, what should have so much emphasis, what should have less emphasis. And all of this can be summarized in two words, اِتْدَال and اِحْتِيَاتِ اِتْدَال means a person should remain balanced. Everything should have its proper perspective. Everything should have its proper relative priority. And اِحْتِيَاتِ means, even then, you should always be aware and wary and careful. اِتْدَال and اِحْتِيَاتِ So inshallah then we will continue at 4 p.m. 4 p.m. inshallah we will have break now you get ready for Salatul Dohar they will pray Salatul Dohar then there will be some refreshment and then we will get together back at 4 inshallah and those who need to take power nap can take power nap after Zohar right and they can take a nap which is called Kailula Sunnah Kailula and then they can again appear again at 4 4 o'clock will be at a different venue the mother's son inshallah okay okay well from that one I'm alhamdulillah